been doing over the last six months within iProspect has been developing our first AI and machine learning powered optimization engine, which is called Core or iProspect Core, which is essentially taking the same approach to machine learning we've just been through, harnessing lots and lots of data, applying different predictive models to it, and to be able to activate across multiple different digital touch points at an incredible amount of accuracy. Because just if we think about our own jobs, one of the most difficult things, particularly in today's very complex digital world, is predicting what the changes are. We make thousands of different changes to paid search campaigns or to SEO or to paid social or to programmatic all the time. And we don't always know specifically what those changes are going to do, or we have a baseline. With machine learning, we can be a lot more confident and accurate about what those changes are and do them more often. But rather than me carry on talking about it, I'm just going to show a quick video that explains what iProspect Core is. iProspect Core is an AI-powered performance marketing engine capable of analyzing and optimizing all of your digital data signals across all of your channels all of the time. It uses machine learning to interpret your digital marketing data and then optimizes the activity based on your business metrics in real time. It delivers better results for less. So how does it work? iProspect Core works by seamlessly integrating technology, data, analytics, and activation. Log file performance data is ingested from ad-serving platforms such as DoubleClick Campaign Manager or web analytics platforms like Adobe or Google Analytics 360. The performance data is then cleansed, partitioned, and stored securely in the cloud on Amazon Web Services for efficiency and to enable scalability. Our customized machine learning algorithms access the log file data and process it at a rate of 6 billion data points per minute to determine the most effective set of optimization decisions. Optimization decisions are then pushed into all key activation platforms, including DoubleClick Search, Google AdWords, Bing Ads, DoubleClick Campaign Manager, DoubleClick Bid Manager, and Facebook Business Manager iProspect Core delivers six key benefits. Reduce time spent on repetitive performance marketing tasks. Build attribution and predictive models in real time. Increase number of optimization opportunities. Increase frequency of optimization. Improve quality of optimization decisions. And improve return on investment. iProspect Core. The future of performance marketing is here. Hello everybody, I'm Caroline, for those of you who don't know me, and I'm just going to talk you through, as Jack mentioned, how we have applied this to one of our clients and some of the results we've seen. So hopefully that video gives you a nice introduction to Core, but I thought it would probably be worth just taking a little bit of a deeper look using this slide, which is the kind of infrastructure that sits behind it, just to explain in a bit more detail what's actually going on behind the scenes. So as the video quite rightly pointed out, this is all around using your digital data to work harder for you all of the time. And that very much starts all the way over there at that end of the chart, which is around data collection. And as we've already mentioned in the video, it's all around encapsulating that performance data, understanding those historical trends. But also because Core is built to be flexible and adaptive to each of our clients, it's about understanding different data that we can start to overlay. You'll see kind of at the bottom of there, we've got things like the Weather Channel. 
we've got BBC News, any data that we can ingest a feed from or connect into the API, we can start to scrape that data. And we're going to store that within Amazon Web Services. And we also have the capability to talk to Google Cloud or Azure for any clients who are using those cloud systems. So it's when we get to the third box here called Plan and Predict, where we're starting to do some interesting things with the data. We've already had a bit of a walkthrough on some machine learning algorithms. And it's this box here where that is starting to happen. And those machine learning algorithms are going to be looking at the data that we're housing in Amazon Web Services and evaluating it and making decisions and coming up with a plan as to how to invest more, invest less, make optimization decisions. And crucially, at that moment, it's also going to be making a prediction. So in the same way that we've just walked through the Titanic exercise today, we are going to be making performance predictions. And that is really important for two reasons. First of all, that prediction, we're going to be looking at the confidence level behind it. And we've already seen, like I think we pointed out 85% today, is the confidence threshold that we want to aim for. And absolutely right, if we're, if we're applying to performance marketing, it is really important that we've got a really high confidence level. And secondly, that prediction actually starts to form part of this learning process that we've kicked off with this machine learning. That plan, and I'll come to that in a minute, that plan is activated directly within AdWords or any of these other systems where we've got that API functionality. But coming back to that prediction and why it's so important, if we've made a prediction that from making a change, be it budgetary or bidding or changing campaign structure, as that change is implemented, we are going to follow this all the way around and we're going to look at the performance that we've managed to generate from that decision. And if the system sees that it has achieved that number, or if it has not achieved the number, conversely, it will feed that in and it will start to learn. And that very much forms that machine learning process. And that is what Core is doing. So enough of the theory. Once we had built Core earlier this year, mm. it was time to kind of test it and see if the concept did what it said it would on the tin. And in thinking about the client that it was right to apply this to, we were speaking to Eurostar and we'd been on a bit of a journey with them over the last couple of years. I think we actually onboarded it two years to the date almost exactly. And we'd been on a journey with them across a lot of their performance channels. And as part of this, we'd implemented things like DMP. We'd been through a massive kind of attribution project with them. But really importantly, over the last six months, the first six months of this year, we'd had a really strong baseline of performance. So we'd seen the CPA reduced by about 20% just based on the efforts that our team was making in the account. In terms of transforming performance moving forward, Spit to Eurostar, they were very keen to pilot this with us. And we went on a bit of a workshop endeavor. So we had a number of workshops with them and it was very much focused what sort of data was going to make a difference to their business and to their performance marketing. We decided let's focus on search. That was a very critical part of their marketing effort. So looking at Google AdWords data, analytics data, but then also starting to think about what a phase two might look like. They were working with Salesforce part of the DMP project that we worked on. And they were using Adafina as a search competitive tool. So thinking about that data that we wanted to ingest into core and then focusing on search. The results. The first five weeks of the pilot that, that we were rolling out, these were the sort of changes that core was starting to make on our behalf. All the way in week one, you might think that those tasks are very basic, but things like pausing poor performing keywords, managing keyword bids, changing campaign structural elements, all the kind of basics that the search team are doing every single day. Core needed to be able to start taking those tasks on, on our behalf to enable it to start doing some more of the complex features that we see in future weeks. So week one, we saw 
a CPA improvement. It was good, but not quite good enough. So we went on a bit of a journey and we started to investigate some of the other features that we could start to optimise through Crawl. Things like cross-device bidding, geo-bidding, time of day, all those sort of data sets that we were getting from AdWords and starting to optimise through Crawl on our behalf. And then moving on to week four and five, we're starting to automate search query processing, which actually, that is quite a difficult task to do. If we're thinking about the sort of new keywords and new searches that we see through AdWords, it's quite easy for a human to sit there and think, should that keyword be a positive keyword or should it be a negative keyword? But for Core to start doing that on our behalf, that takes quite a bit of processing power and intelligence. So that was the first five weeks. We have now been live for coming up for two months. And these are the results that we've seen overall. So really, really positive, all the way from kind of cost per click and, and making efficiencies there through to an improvement in conversion rate, which, and I should have said actually, this was the main goal. So CPA was the main goal for Eurostar that we'd identified back in the workshop phase. So we've seen a 30% improvement in CPA overall. So we're very happy with those results. <laughs> uh, Eurostar are also very happy with the results. And I think most importantly that we're starting to use these results now to think about 2018 planning. So how can we take more data, ingest more data into core and see what we can do in 2018? And I think as kind of a final point for me, as we're, I know quite a few 2018 plans are already being kind of made, but delighted to have a conversation about how this can kind of fit into your marketing efforts for next year. And really we can already start to look at any data that clients have and start to make predictions based on that. So I'm going to hand over now to Scott and Rahul, who are going to talk about their thoughts for the future. We're very lucky this morning to be joined by Rahul Palmer from Google, ad tech and agency lead for mm -hmm. UK and I for Google Cloud Platform, and expert in all things machine learning. Welcome, Rahul. Oh, thanks for having me. So I guess a good place to start would be to get your perspective on what some of the key trends we're seeing in machine learning at the moment are. Yeah, that's a good question, actually. There's lots. So we think we see about seven trends at Google, but I'm not going to go into all seven. I would say the big ones, and you can kind of see it in our product stack, is uh, so democratization of AI and ML. So we're taking things like image recognition or speech-to-text and saying, you don't really need to build those features yourself. We can make them an API, and you can use them that way. Something you're probably seeing is a massive enterprise interest in ML, but what you're probably also seeing is a lot of confusion about what ML is. So enterprises are coming to, you know, I was in a meeting yesterday where a major global bank came to us and said, we want to do machine learning. And we said, okay, but to what end? And they said, we don't know, but that's, that's what you guys do, so help us do machine learning. And then we go into this massive discovery exercise, right? Like Probably like what you're doing with, with Core and your clients. So the other trend there is it's, it's, it's sexy and it's front, of market, it's front of mind, but it's not well-defined. And, and the truth is it isn't well-defined as a practice, and it can, be it can manifest in your business in pretty much any way that you want it to. So those are probably two that I would say are, are the most relevant. The other five, there's lots. I don't want to get into all five of them. That democratization bit's mm -hmm. really interesting, isn't it? When we start thinking about how accessible, I guess, machine yeah, learning is becoming. That and like you can apply that same trend to any, a lot of technology, and that sounds really crass. But let's like if you go back, you know, even even ten years, cloud wasn't as relevant or as front of mind as it is now. So. 10 years ago or 12 years ago, you wanted to build a startup, your initial round might have been a couple million dollars because you needed to buy infrastructure and you needed to hire a few developers and actually build this thing out. Now you can start a startup with a credit card and a good idea and you use you know, a GCP or an AWS and you just fire up a small instance and let it scale out as your startup grows. So 
ML is kind of the same thing now, right? It, it, there's still lots of it that is very high end that will require lots of very smart people to build very custom things. But in the short term, there's there's a bunch of easy APIs to use, and there's a bunch of other products that leverage ML for you. So you know, there's a, a whole bunch of vendors building. Just give us your data, and we'll do the decisioning for you, right? And you can see that in different different ways on the internet. But that's kind of being democratized too. I think if you want to be at the cutting edge of stuff and you and you want the most competitive advantage in my personal opinion i think it's better to build your own thing for the most part but not everybody's there yet on the theme of building your own and you being from google can you tell us a bit about how google have been using ai yep. over the past few years yeah there's there's three examples i think that are my personal favorite but before i get into those i would say AI is pretty much in all of our products, right? I think yeah. everybody sees that. So many of you, I assume, have personal Gmail accounts. You probably see on those the smart reply buttons. That's kind of a manifestation of AI for us. Or, you know, when we start to surface things on your phone, like you should leave now to get to your next meeting. All of that kind of stuff is, is where AI manifests itself in our products to the user. But my favorite use cases for Google as a business, so where we actually leverage it to change how we do things, are on three fronts. So two on the revenue side. The first is we have a product called G Suite, right? Which is like our docs, sheets, calendar, all that stuff. We, we generate a lot of interest in that product via digital marketing, so paid media channels, just like you would do for any other client. Now, what we used to do was use paid media, drive a bunch of users to a free trial, wait to see how those users did over that free trial. So after 30 days, how many of them converted? Use that converted value 30 days from now to determine how we would reinvest in these channels up here. It's a very standard, marketing practice. What we do now is we get kind of a model built on all of the users that have used G Suite and have converted. And then it kind of gives us a propensity on everyone new that's coming into the product stack on the trial. How likely are they to convert? And based on that likelihood, two days in, we readjust the channel. So we're, it's just a tighter feedback loop between here's how we spent our money, here's who showed up. And instead of waiting 30 to 45 days to decide if we spent our money well, we can decide on day two and then rejig the channels up here. Does that make sense to everybody? That, that's kind of one that I enjoy and kind of hits home with you guys and what you're trying to do here. The second on the revenue side is a bit more internal. It's a product called Soothsayer. And so what we do there is kind of in the same vein. We look at usage across all of our products with our customers. And this effectively takes all of that usage and surfaces to a sales team what products we should be cross-selling, upselling, and how likely the customer is to convert on those products. So it's effectively a lead scoring mechanism but it saves us a lot of time. And I think actually internally it's being credited with over $100 million of incremental revenue, which you know is a decent pot of change if you think about it. And then on the cost-cutting side, I would say cost-cutting is it's a bad term. I'd say optimization side. But we launched using DeepMind a little while ago a bunch of DeepMind algorithms basically into our data centers to optimize for PUE. So a data center at Google runs, in terms of cost, anywhere between $600 million to $2 billion, depending on the size of the actual kit. So they're fairly significant investments for us to make, and that's where all of our products run. It's where Google Cloud Platform runs. And PUE is a measure called power usage effectiveness. So what that effectively is saying is, how many units of power do we need to suck in to provide one unit of power to an actual computing piece? So don't include overhead like cooling and electricity. Just about to actually spin up the disk or run the machine, what's the efficiency? To give you an idea, if our PUE was 1.5, that would mean point, so we need to take in 1.5 units to provide one unit of power to the actual machines themselves. The other 0.5 goes into overhead. So we applied these algorithms to our data centers to say, can we, can we do something with 
how we cool, when we turn on certain systems, and where we place the racks to determine or to decrease our PUE is the way to think about it. And we took ours down about 40% overall. And 40% across all of our data centers adds up to be a fairly significant number in terms of power and cooling. So I think our data centers now run at 1.12, which I think makes them the most efficient in the world, but I, I don't, don't quote me on that one. It's close. It's definitely like top 100. <laughs> There's three very different uses yep. there, and I guess even today we've been predicting the fate of people on the Titanic as well. What do you think is the biggest difference that ML might make for the brands and marketers in the room here today? In terms of like what kind of use cases I've seen yeah. out there? We've seen a lot of cool stuff. I think one actually that I came across very recently that I think is, is really interesting is we had a, uh, so a major insurance company out of the U.S. came to Google, and we run these programs where we'll bring in team of engineers from the from the clients or from the insurance company and we'll pair them with our machine learning engineers in either the Mountain View office or Dublin or London or whatever it may be and they spend four weeks intensive basically chasing down a use case and so they came to us and in the course of these four weeks we actually built so they do car insurance and they were saying how can we make car insurance a bit more interesting for a generation that mostly doesn't drive and hates insurance companies so it's, it's kind of like the uber effect right where a lot of us probably didn't take that many black cabs, but a lot of us take a lot more Ubers than we did black cabs. You change the way people use it, and it expands the market. They're kind of coming to us with that, that mentality. And so what we put together is actually a really cool application. So what it does is if you get into a car accident, instead of now calling your insurance agent and like going through all this garbage of what's, what am I allowed, what's my deductible, da-da-da, you can actually take a photo of your car post-accident, and it will automatically tell you what the damage is on your car and start filing the claim for you. So that... Today is still in very early stages, but they're predicting this to be a $100 million opportunity for them because it will expand the number of people that are actually using this, this technology. That's smart. It's pretty cool, right? Isn't it? That is pretty smart. I wouldn't have thought of that because I haven't driven a car in like six years. I love that. Machine learning plays a significant role across a lot of your products and services. Mm -hmm. How do you think it is going to redefine the value of agencies in client-publisher relationships in the future? Okay. <laughs> That's a that's a it's a good question actually. And I think I think the work you're doing with Core is more in line with where I see the agencies going in the future versus where they are now. I think, and I'm I'm gonna like rashly generalize here, but I'm gonna say you have a lot of manpower and 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 it makes more sense for you guys to build these kinds of solutions for your clients and unleash them on them than it does for you to sit there and click buttons to drive media spend, right? So I think. If I look at an agency in the future and if I look at what a company wants to do with marketing or as a business in the future, marketing in the future is not about how do we buy media, right? It's about what do our customers do, what do we know about our customers, and how can we get in front of them with the right message. All of that is not just marketing data. There's sales data in there. There's finance. There's CRM. There's inventory. There's anything you know about these people from social media, whatever it may be. Agencies need to get better at bringing all that data together and actually building this customer data platform for their marketers to actually use. So I think this core thing is, is in line with that, right? Right now it's an optimization engine, but there's a world in which it takes many, many more signals, right? That, that a customer either shares with you or that you integrate for your customer and then makes even more decisions. So I think that's the world that we should be going to, I think. Now, I'm sure you might have a, you might have a different opinion, but I think that, that would be an interesting place to be. No, I think I, I share that opinion. A bit of a final question for you. For the people looking to incorporate machine learning into their businesses as, as we go into 2018, and mm -hmm. Jack mentioned our survey earlier, actually 61% of people that we surveyed through that said they were likely to incorporate machine learning next year. 
What would be your advice to those people in order to make that happen? I say the same things to lots of customers when they come to talk to us about this. I say, number one, you need to break down some of the data silos in your business. Uh, and that's, that's really a customer side problem, right? It's not something that one guy from Google is going to go in and start making HR share with, like, it's just not going to happen. So I think the idea of like data ownership in a business needs to change into what can we do with all of this stuff together. And to, so those silos need to come down and bring it all into one spot. I think that's that's important for things like training models and deciding what features make sense, right? We If we don't see everything, we don't really know what we can and can't use. So that's number one. Number two, I think, is training people. Like the the idea that you can go out there and grab the people that know how to do machine learning and that there's enough of them to go around that you'll be able to do what you want is not not at all true, right? I think you have to start upskilling people, especially if you've got you know people that know SQL. It's it's not super related, but it's a start, and they 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 have the ability to go up into into the next phase of stuff. So you kind of start training people upwards. And third is I think you need to get a little bit more comfortable with experimentation, which means you don't always know if the thing that you're spending time and money on with people is going to pan out into some huge ROI for each individual project. But you do know in the long term, the arc of these things, they will pan out as positive. It won't be all of them. It will be a few, but you need a portfolio of stuff that you're running at. And so companies can get in their own way a lot saying, you know, we don't see the immediate value of this. That's not how you can approach this problem. It should be something you're looking at a little bit more longer term. Break down the silos, focus on the people, and experiment. Become a cowboy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Cowgirl. Uh, well, Cowperson. Well, thank you very much, Rahul, for yeah, sharing for some me. of your thoughts this morning. Thank you, everyone. Rahul Palmer. Fantastic. Thank you both very much, Rahul and Scott. The main thing I heard you say, Rahul, that we are the agency of the future. I think <laughs> yeah, that, that was my key, key, yeah. key takeaway. Right. But just like with the previous breakfast briefings and the ones that we'll have in the future, we just want to make sure that we give everyone three key takeaways of things that you can do when you go back to the office later today to start thinking about to apply machine learning for those 2018 plans. So the first one, although it sounds incredibly basic, but I think everyone has said it in a different part today, whether it was myself or Rahul or Sophie or Caroline, was around really defining the challenge, clearly articulating what the business challenge is that you would like machine learning or AI to actually solve. In the example of Eurostar, they didn't come to us and say, the challenge is I want a 30% lower CPA. That was obviously a great outcome that we wanted to get to, but their challenge is all around incredibly competitive market where they are a high-speed train service between London and Paris and Brussels, but they are competing heavily with airlines. So how can they think about using data and different algorithms to be more competitive in their paid search spend during that time? The second thing is just starting with a number of different hypotheses. So just like we did in the machine learning task, it is you are defining a challenge, but you are coming up with those hypotheses, whether it's women and children are more likely to survive or the higher I was on, you know, the higher debt, the more likely I am to survive. If you start with those number of hypotheses, you can set the direction for the machines and create a baseline of what your first hypothesis may be this score or this amount, this accurate. The next one may be down, the next one may be up, but you want to keep testing those all the time. And then the third part of defining the challenge is starting to develop your machine learning research roadmap now. So once you define that challenge and you've built those hypotheses, then work out the roadmap. Just start with one challenge and have a roadmap for understanding what data and what models you want to start and test. 
the second thing you need to do is really get familiar with your data. That's both data you've got access to now and understanding what third-party providers can supply you with. You want to be creating the infrastructure to centralize and join up these different sources to provide a platform for analysts or a team of analysts to experiment with, but being important to trade off these gains in innovation and accessibility with prudent data governance. We'd encourage you to start small and let teams and development scale as a, a project grows naturally. And finally, if you have defined your hypotheses and you have data in the right place, the next bit is then making sure that you have both technology and the experts that you need. Talk to the experts. We know that this is a learning journey. We have been on it ourselves as well. And make sure that you have the right place to corral and access all of that data. We know it is a solvable challenge, but we also know that it is a journey and it's one that we're all very excited to be on. Are there any questions from the audience? Yes. So I'm just going to repeat the questions. Machine learning and AI, the benefits seem pretty clear for clients or a business, but how do you actually get businesses, customers, comfortable with what you're doing and comfortable with the data you're using so it doesn't feel intrusive or we're taking advantage of, the, of those customers? It's a good question. For me, the control and the, the control and the creepiness is kind of in what you do with the data, right? So I think everyone's had a few examples where an organization has messaged something to you and you're like, yeah, you shouldn't know that about me. It's kind of, I hate to say that this answer is what it's going to be, but the responsibility kind of sits with you as, as, the, as the person using the data. I think as a consumer, I know that banks are using ML to do things like anomaly detection and fraud prevention. So as a consumer, I think that's a use case that I don't mind if my card gets frozen because you've decided something is a bit sketchy and you want to give me a call. I think that's a use case where it's a little bit creepy because you're looking at all my transactions, right? But at the same time, you're doing it with my best in interest in mind. So it, that's kind of a holistic or an altruistic use case, I would say. But yeah, unfortunately, I think that line is still pretty gray and we're still trying to figure out where it's going to be. And, and there's going to be a little bit of a slap on the wrist for probably everyone in the room at least once in the next little while. It's just going to it's going to happen as you try to figure out what you, you should and should not be doing. If you at least when I think about how Google looks at this, we try to be altruistic at all times and try to do things that benefit the consumer without being it's kind of like being honest with your intentions, right? I'm trying to do this to serve you better, not so I can take advantage of you in some way. I would just add to that. I think there is a bit of an education piece here as well. Some of the new things that are being learnt at school, my, my nephew is five and starting to think about things he's going to be learning in future, like coding, which is terrifying. But I think as people understand more how it works and if we collectively, not just as a marketing industry, but business in general, can articulate the benefits. I think the fraud detection is an excellent example where you, I'll get a text from my bank going, this looks a bit dodged, and you're like, no, I, I did just buy five pairs of shoes. Um, but I am grateful for that service. I think it's education so people understand how it works, the transparency, so that we can be very clear on how data has been accessed and how it's being used, but also then the education so that people can understand how these decisions are derived. Any other questions? Yes. So the question is, how do we balance the short term and the long term in terms of having to focus on the short term fixes we need to be doing at the same time in the long term using machine learning, which we know that will probably take away quite a lot of those short term problems. 
I mean, particularly with Eurostar and just thinking back to the experience there, it was a similar conversation of we want to use machine learning, first of all. And then it was getting in a room and actually workshopping through. And a lot of the things that I shared today, you'll see that that is quite short term at the moment. It's focusing on the challenges today and how we improve what we're doing today. And it was starting small with a view to now we're looking at 2018 planning and thinking about how we're ingesting better, bigger data to become smarter. So I think for us with Eurostar, it was just starting the journey and starting to get to the evolution. And as Sophie said, I think, you know, we've been on a journey ourselves and been fortunate to do that with Eurostar. And I think it's just starting that process. I think we've probably got time for one more question. Excellent question. So how well does iProspect Core integrate with other technologies? So first of all, our own iProspect technologies, such as Activate, but also third parties like DS, Kenshu and Marin. So just on the iProspect technology front, iAnalyze, which is our key reporting dashboard that we use, we're just starting to integrate that now so that the UI for iProspect surfaces through there. And actually, that's been quite interesting for us because <laughs> machine learning and the changes it's making can sometimes be a bit of a black box. So we're able to now surface what Core has been doing in iAnalyze so you can see performance over time with the decisions that Core is making. So that's one of the key integrations that we've made. Obviously, we're still early days. So as we start to partner with more clients, we'll think about iActivate as a functionality and how that needs to work together. And then just with regards to third party technology, so I don't think Eurostar will mind me sharing that they work with DS3. So it was really important from day one to make sure that the two systems can work together. Now, obviously, when we started to look at keyword bidding through Core, we're taking that out of DS and plugging it into Core. There was a thorough testing procedure that went on behind that, by the way. Um, but there are other things that we still want DS to be doing on our behalf. It's kind of a balance at the moment between looking at, at DS as strongest performer in market Smashed <laughs> given it. That, yeah, there you go. and looking at what they can do on our behalf versus what core can do given that it has a slightly broader data ecosystem so kind of using the two together to get the maximum benefit for Eurostar it just leaves me to say thank you all very very much for joining and thank you to our speakers <laughs>